0: Becky Hutner's documentary, Fashion Reimagine, is a powerful film with an important message. It seemed right to close out our year with our interview with Becky, whose good work is furthering the efforts of so many who are trying to make the world of fashion more sustainable, in part by educating its consumers. The documentary follows fashion designer Amy Powney, who is creative director of the brand Mother of Pearl as she works to create a sustainable line of apparel. It follows the journey of a garment from fiber to finish. It's a beautiful film, and it doesn't talk down to you, which is a pretty big deal for a movie about the massive systemic changes that we need to make in fashion. Amy generously made time to talk to me and John, and in this half of the conversation, she really breaks down the steps it took to get her project made. And she talks with us quite candidly about the mysterious process of taking an idea and figuring out how to bring it to life on screen. For our last episode of the year, we really wanted to leave things on a positive note to help inspire you and yours as we all start thinking about what we'd like to accomplish and make in the next 12 months. Becky's enthusiasm, the love that she so clearly has for this work that she has dedicated her life to, it was the perfect way to close our season. We'll see you again
1: in 2024. I want to briefly circle a little bit back. You know, we talked about the hard work that you put, your team put into balancing and striking the right pacing and tone between the micro and the macro. And, you know, with something like sustainability issues, often something that comes up in our conversation, we often with kids, obviously, is this idea of educating without inducing climate change anxiety or without unintentionally striking a sort of doom and gloom kind of tone because these are serious issues. How did you avoid sort of narratively falling into that place of accidentally, not nagging necessarily, but maybe it gets a little too heavy and maybe it gets a little too dense in parts and it throws that bounce off. What was that process like? Was that a big part of those those editing rounds and those feedback rounds in terms of getting that
2: tone right? Yes. Absolutely. And and there's been an evolution in my personal life alongside my filmmaking life in how to communicate these issues effectively without triggering people, without putting people off, without making people feel guilty. And it's definitely been a learning curve for me, you know, when I first got interested in these issues, you know, twelve ish years ago. I would kind of go back and forth between you know, just blurting a bunch of really dark, <laughs>
0: uncomfortable
2: <laughs> stuff at people and that would just like turn them off and scare them away and being completely silent and almost like closeted about the fact mm-hmm. that I'm an environmentalist. I just like it was so hard to find the balance in my own life. And I, I think it it will always be a process. But with the film. Yeah. You know, I mean, something that was instrumental was I was lucky enough to participate in something called the Climate Lab through an organization called Doc Society, which funds a lot or partially funds a lot of documentary projects and including our own. And the Climate Lab was all about effective climate storytelling and how you can best communicate these issues. And, and you know, that was, I learned a lot from from the climate lab. I, for example, we had some, there were some protests at London Fashion Week and that was a scene in our film. And I learned that, I mean, this is kind of, you know, I, I enjoy protests, but I learned that is one of, some of the most divisive imagery is imagery of protests. And then it actually turns a lot of people off. Hmm. And, and so, you know, I made this decision to cut that out and focus on other kinds of imagery but like I never would have known that and we learned about different demographics of people and what they respond to and I realized that I was thinking in a really narrow way about what you know what's effective for me which is really not necessarily what's effective for you know the majority of the population so so yeah I mean there were a lot of rounds of there were a lot of iterations of the film and to be honest some ended in a slightly darker way. Um and they just didn't they just didn't play as well even though you know it might be it might be what I feel a lot of the time, it might be you know, I mean part of the reality that we live in, but it's just what I found is it's not as galvanizing as, you know, I'm going on a hopeful inspiring note. I'll also say that you know, leading character-led stories, like leading with narrative instead of more of an issue-based film is, I think, a really gentle, inviting way in to difficult issues. Because if you're just telling a story about a person, um, you know, the audience is, I guess, guard is down there. You know, if, they, if you can get people to follow an interesting person and their journey i think they're much more likely to take difficult issues on board than if you lead with like talking heads and scary images
1: and all yeah.
2: that yeah. yeah exactly so i think that was a key in communicating this difficult issue was finding an incredible inspiring person and a really interesting journey that like makes for a great film in and of itself
3: I It kind of gets back to some things we were talking about earlier about the
2: interconnections and about,
3: I mean, I I just really like the idea. I think I, we all respond to a story. If we can see ourselves, or we can see our mother or, you know, little brother or best friend, if we can see somebody and we can, I think that's probably as close to the definition of empathy, right? And I know that there's a lot of important work. There's a lot of important stories that are told, but I think you're absolutely right. If you tell them in a way that's like hammering the worst parts, or the most terrible parts, the darkest parts—I mm-hmm. mean, people can turn it off. They want to think about it. They want to hear about it, and that's almost, or maybe even the opposite of what you're trying to do. And I think that's one of the things that really impressed me much about the film, because I, at no point in time, felt like I was being chastised, and at no point in time did I feel like I was being talked down to. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another issue that I've had with not your work, but just some nonfiction filmmaking about either climate or social issues, is that you can feel like, I don't know, you're not being treated as a equal. You don't know enough. And your filmmaking is just benevolent, I guess. Maybe that's a good way to put it.
1: Yeah. I'm a, an activist for social issues since I was 14. I did my first keynote on anti-Semitism. anti-Semitism. Oh. And one thing I noticed is that, to your point, the minute you reach a certain critical mass of statistics or like issue density, that's where people just kind of it's very easy to glaze over and disengage because we are just assaulted in our everyday lives with so many statistics and numbers and figures and and when you're in the framework of a documentary it I love that you touched on the fact that being narratively driven is how you broker these types of conversations and this kind of discourse because again, the overlap with sort of our implied thesis here, a little red fashion, which is using storytelling through fashion to talk about. Uh, in many issues, is so important, and I think, particularly for you know, filmmakers, what I think you're a great example of is finding a voice on a complex topic that's able to broker the conversation. I think the best documentary filmmaking acts as a broker for conversation, Aww. and I think you sort of nail that really well.
2: So much, thank you so Do much. You, yeah, I oh,
1: love absolutely. Do you have any advice for?
2: And I I give a lot of credit to our main characters, designer Amy Coney, and also Chloe, who's her close colleague and and right-hand woman in the film. And I think, or I would hope that a lot of audience members can see themselves in an Amy or a Chloe. Amy is kind of someone, she's this fierce leader, but she's also... You know, she has this fragility to her. She grew up with, you know, off-grid, with not very much money. She was bullied as a kid for having a family who was a bit different. And then she moves to London and takes the fashion scene by storm. You know, we can all root for a character like that. But also Chloe, you know, Amy is more serious and she's very, very knowledgeable about sustainability. Chloe is like, you know, is the comic relief in the film and I think a lot of us can imagine ourselves in her position she's someone who knew nothing about sustainability and her boss comes to her and is like all right I've got this project I'm going to create the sustainable collection and I need you to figure it out and you need to research how we're going to do this and you need to find factories and you need to make this happen and She's someone who's like wants to make her boss happy and is like
1: okay okay we're going in right right I think, well, that- I think that's an important dynamic I think I think a lot of activists I have that fr- like a lot of their friends a lot of friends of mine are like okay you're about to info dump a ton of really random super specific niche information that could maybe be intimidating so being able to show that dynamic on screen is really important because mm-hmm. I think it gives people who are watching who kind of all know that person in their life who's their sustainability friend mm-hmm. right watching them sort of do the info dump and translation into sort of layman's terms is a really good mirroring exercise that people can then feel empowered to go to their sustainability nerd friend and go, okay, you can be my Amy for a minute and you're going to like tell me all the things that I will know. And it breaks down even that teaching process, which I think is important.
2: I think that absolutely. Thank goodness for Chloe. I can't imagine the film without her. One of my favorite lines of her was when she's just starting out on this project, and she's like, "I think the first thing I did was Google, what is a sustainable fabric," which is like how kind of a lot of us start. You know, we're like, "Okay, yeah. Google this, and I'm going to figure it out." Well,
3: it goes back to the you know the human part, the human story part. I mean, taking a sense of shame away, or showing that literally any of us would start mm-hmm. right there, yeah, and just not making a thing of it, but just having that be this is how it starts mm-hmm. i mean that's hugely
1: valuable oh yeah absolutely but also reminded me of like oh gosh what is that movie confessions of a shopaholic where it's just <laughs> like did you just google finance because you're like you're in the mix and you, you know you have to be okay mm-hmm. with starting from i don't know what's going on i'm a little overwhelmed i think if more people were felt easy in that moment people would learn about larger issues more easily
2: I completely agree. And actually, that is something that I do admire about Amy is that she's she's not afraid to ask any questions and she's not afraid to look stupid asking a question and, and just following her as she sourced her supply chain and going to different factories. She was just like, question, question, question. Do you recycle this? What happens here? And she she just doesn't care. She's she's so curious. And just like single-mindedly, after the information that she'll just she'll just ask anything that she, she just has to know. Well,
3: I just think that leads really nicely into this next question because we're talking about here is a. I mean, I know that there were people, probably of all genders, working on your project, or at least you know whatever. It's not the point, but the point being that it's a group of women, very talented, capable women, mm-hmm. and so with our. Everything that we do is really focused on empowering and supporting and providing tools. We talk a lot about a toolbox for younger people. So, for girls or young women or just young filmmakers in general, do you think that there's any particular do's and don'ts that they should be avoiding, even if they're just getting started as children or teenagers, mm-hmm. or what they should try to do or focus on?
2: Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, the tips that I have are things that I, I wish I had done myself and I really fell short of doing. And I just look back and I'm like, oh, Becky, man, I, you know, I wish we'd done the things. So, so one of them is just like, what I forget, I forget the source of this quote, but the best way to get started is to get started and, and don't be afraid to just start making things and making bad work. And just like, doing it and starting on your 10,000 hours. I don't know if all of your listeners are familiar oh, yeah. with the 10,000 hour concept, but just just go. And you know, luckily we have we have phones these days. We have access to technology that I did not have when I was a teenager certainly. So I think if you have an idea, go after it and do it and don't be, don't worry about perfection. Think of it as getting your hours in. And the sooner you start the journey, if you want to start that journey, the better. Because I spent so many years being afraid of doing bad work that, you know, like I, I said, I was an editor for several years before I became a director. And not that that's a bad thing, but but I was kind of hiding behind that role and scared to step out and make things because I didn't want to, you know, make something. Fi- bad work in front of my peers and just get rid of all of that and start making the thing. Okay. Is is the bottom line. The second thing for, you know, young women who are a bit older and are kind of, you know, looking at how to get their foot in the door of the film industry or TV or content creation is that I would say like if an opportunity opens up That's at a company that is not your first choice, or it's in a department that's not your first choice. I'd say any way in is is a good thing, and that you, you should think seriously about taking that opportunity because it is so, so difficult. And I always think back to a mistake that I made when I graduated university. I had an internship at an amazing production company that represented many directors that I hugely admired. And I was offered a receptionist job at that company. And I didn't take it because I didn't want to be seen by these people that I admire so much as a receptionist. And I'm like, stupid, stupid, take the job. Like that was my foot in the door. And who knows what could have transpired for that. And then I would have been in the office with all these people that I admire so much. And you know, who knows where that could have led. So even if it's not your idea, I'm, I, I thought I wasn't very good at answering phones. Who cares? Like, you know, any way in should be considered seriously. And I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, don't always take the job, but, but it's, it's worth considering those opportunities very seriously. Yeah. Those are two, two pieces of advice I would give.
1: I mean, those are, those are definitely amazing pieces of advice. I mean, you got to, Really. Where, wherever wherever you are, you got to start there. That's definitely you've echoed the sentiments of many of our guests over the years at Little Red Village for I'm sure. Wanting like especially putting in the reps and like starting where you are, I think is a really good way to put a fine point on that. One question that we do ask all of our guests this season uh, is really, and you touched on this a little bit earlier, was this idea of mentorship. And people that have heavily influenced you one of the reasons we started this podcast was really to give a window into mentorship by way of career stories to our audience and so I was wondering if you might just briefly touch on both your experience with mentorships within your career and any anything you want to highlight with either the search for mentors or what that journey has been like for you on that front
2: yeah absolutely so you know for a lot of my career i i wouldn't say that I had official mentors, but there are a few people who I would consider mentors, and one of them we touched on is environmental filmmaker Rob Stewart, and you know the subject matter that he was focused on in his film. Basically, I mean he was like a superhero to me, and he was using his filmmaking to help save the planet, and and yeah, I mean I learned I first learned about you know, the plight of the planet about climate change from Rob Stewart. So, that in itself was hugely instrumental in terms of the path that I've taken as a filmmaker. And just, you know, his style of filmmaking was also very inspirational to me. He's very, very scrappy. Talk about like just starting where you are. You know, he was a photographer who just started, just found the video setting on his still camera one day when he spotted, you know, an issue, some illegal fishing going on in it, you know, his career evolved from there. From there. He really scrappy. It was often like just him on a mission with his camera. He was on camera too. So he was, yeah, he was a wonderful mentor. Um, and then, sorry, there's like really loud thunder. I don't know. No, it's fine. That, um, But, you know, another mentor who I also mentioned was Vesna Tudich, my sales agent that I met at Berlin Film Festival. Um, Vesna is someone who is an industry veteran in the doc world. She started out as a filmmaker herself. She's incredibly well-connected. And for whatever reason, she took a huge personal interest in my own career which I just feel so, so lucky for because she's really beloved in the industry and just knows so many filmmakers. And I'm I'm she's she, you know, while we're not working together on my next project, she's someone who I send cuts of the trailer to, I send treatments to, and she's always very happy to look at my work and give very honest, tough love feedback what you really do, she is absolutely no nonsense and she's a very busy lady. So there's no flowery language. There's, it's just like cut to the chase. It's really good to have someone like that in your life. Actually. I mean, that's also that kind of, you know, rolls into a tip as well is that when I want feedback on my work, I don't show it to my best friend. who's just going to give me tons of compliments. Mm. <laughs> like I share it to set with someone who I know is gonna be straight with me. And those, you know, those moments are very painful when you get hard feedback and, you know, this farm project that I've been developing, it's going on a lot longer than, <laughs> than I plan, this development process because I'm getting all this hard feedback, but it's really important, like better to get that feedback in the beginning than to put it out in the world and get that feedback from audiences
1: you know? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. As the notoriously blunt friend, I am often the giver of that feedback, but I love it when I get it because you only you only polish a a rock with some grit. So absolutely. That is a good motto. Yes. That brings us to our, our last question that we always ask every single one of our guests as book nerds. Uh, We always ask for a book recommendation. So if you have any books that you feel were very impactful in your career journey and inspiring the way that you view documentary filmmaking or even fashion, feel free to share that. We would love, our audience members love getting our regular book lists with our recommendations from our guests.
2: Absolutely. There are so many. I chose to focus on a fashion one, a sustainable fashion one, and I'm just going to hold it up here. It's called ooh, Cradle, ooh. Cradle. Are you guys familiar with that, that one? I'm not. I'm
1: know. not familiar with this one either, but I could tell you that Rachel and I are going to run to Alibris and or Amazon. And-
2: yes. And I, I don't know if you can see all of the dog-eared pages. Mm-hmm. Here, and it's like hugely underlined with lots of notes. <laughs> no, sorry, I mean, so many books, my favorites, they're tabbed. Yeah, no, every hey. other page. The authors, are. I hope I'm getting their names right, but Michael Braungart and William McDonough. And it was published in the early 2000s and was kind of a pioneering book about circularity. So it's all about designing in a regenerative way, designing in a way that nature just works automatically. You know, there's like nature uses all of its own waste. You know, how can we design these systems that give back as much or more as we take from them it's a beautiful book on all kinds of design like architecture
3: it sounds wonderful
2: yeah Um, it's incredible and you know no matter what we make has an impact whether it's fashion or making products electronics houses you know we're all we're always taking resources from the earth and creating waste so how can we you know, do that in a more, in a way that where the the impacts are positive and we're not always taking, taking, taking. Mm
1: -hmm. No, amazing. That's a phenomenal recommendation. I think that's our first circularity focused recommendation, which is really amazing. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Becky. Once again, our guest today was Becky Hutner, the amazing documentary filmmaker. We can't wait for her film to come out so you guys can see it. For
2: anyone who wants to check out Fashion Reimagined, it's now streaming in the US on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and Google Play.
1: We were spoiled and lucky and got to preview it. You're not gonna wanna miss it. I know you're gonna love it as much as we do everyone, and we may be bringing out a worksheet for some of our older students that has to do with watching the film. so be on the lookout. And we are so, so grateful for her time artistry and for sharing her journey with everyone here today. Thank you so much for That was a wonderful, amazing way to end this season of Little Red Village with our phenomenal guest, the filmmaker and documentarian Becky Huttner. As always, onto the footnotes. Let's kick off with Doc Society. Becky mentioned an organization that was really helpful in terms of funding and supporting documentary filmmakers like her called Doc Society. Founded in 2005, it's a nonprofit that believes independent documentary makers make an essential contribution to society, culture, and democracy. They are resilient and determined. They make their work because they believe it is the right thing to do, even if it doesn't make them rich or famous. Quoting their website, they are experts at spotting great films, at seeing the potential in first-time filmmakers and emerging talent. Often, they are the first to back a film and give confidence to other funders and distributors to come on board. You can learn more about them and their work at DocSociety.org. Coming up next, we have the 10,000-hour rule. You know, I did a quick calculation. 10,000 hours is roughly about nine years. (laughs) In any event, popularized by Malcolm Gladwell and introduced in Chapter 2 of his book, Outliers, The Story of Success, the 10,000-hour rule, he says, means that it takes 10,000 hours of correct practice to become world-class in anything, from music to sewing and anything you can imagine. Now, Gladwell based this, quote, rule... On um, research done by an Anders Ericsson, and the researcher himself actually thinks Gladwell oversimplified his work. 10,000 hours is an average, and there are a ton of variables that affect the outcome whether that's having the right mentors having the proper feedback loops to get feedback on whether that practice is working or not how to change it Uh, and while the science may not be as cut and dried as Gladwell suggests we know that quality practice mentors to guide you and feedback to improve are key to mastering anything you want and if you listen to almost all of our episodes or any of our episodes at Little Red Village our amazing Little Red Villagers have talked about this time and time again all the way back to our first season through to second season and, and to this third season so this theory is at least worth giving a google search to to learn more at least as inspiration finally our last footnote is all about circularity becky's book recommendation was an early and important book on circularity but what is circularity In economics, circularity means a product, service or resource is renewed or regenerated rather than wasted. In a circular economy, when a product or resource is used, it's then recycled, composted or reused in a way that allows it to go back into a new life cycle or supply chain. It's a closed loop usage model rather than one that produces discarded waste. Fashion companies produce some of the largest amounts of waste on the planet, and we have a duty to explore solutions in this area to keep our planet safe. Teaching the public about concepts like circularity is the first step to creating consumers who can demand companies take action in this area and vote with their wallets. It's why documentaries like Becky's are so, so vital. That's all for today's footnotes. Don't forget, please, Great and give a great review to us at Little Red Village on your streaming platform of choice. We will see you on the flip side next season, our fourth season of Little Red Village with more guests, more activities, and more resources. Have a wonderful holiday season and new year. And most importantly, remember, fashion is for everyone. On behalf of my team and everyone here at Little Red Fashion and Little Red Village, Thank you so much for spending this season with us and listening to the work that we put out there and supporting everything that we do.